Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy, Allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. This episode contains distressing themes and is intended for mature audiences only. Listener discretion is advised. On this episode of They Walk Among America, Detroit, Michigan bore witness to the rise of the automobile industry, solidifying its reputation as the nation's automotive capital. However, the city endured a severe blow during the tumultuous 2000s as the recession swept through its streets. The once thriving metropolis suffered a mass exodus of its population, triggering a catastrophic collapse in property prices. Homes were abandoned, and Detroit was plagued by a wave of foreclosures. As a result, property developers could snatch up properties at absurdly low prices. The east side of the city, even before the subprime crash, was becoming something of a wasteland. Entire suburban blocks were bulldozed as people fled their homes to escape gun and gang culture. In this bleak landscape, an Australian man named Greg McNichol saw something in Detroit that few others could. He wanted to enrich the lives of the community by purchasing a dilapidated apartment complex and transforming it into a desirable place to live. Greg lowered the rent and ensured his tenants were well taken care of. In the end, however, Greg's goodwill was repaid in the most horrific way imaginable. Hello, listeners. I'm your host, Nina Instead, and welcome to Episode 80 of They Walk Among America, a joint production between the Law and Crime Podcast Network and They Walk Among Us, the award-winning true crime podcast. Greg McNichol, the second son of Melbourne's esteemed policeman Graham McNichol, possessed an extraordinary lineage. His father held a position of high regard as a senior sergeant within the Special Operations Division. While attending the prestigious Peninsula School on the picturesque Mornington Peninsula, Greg's athletic talents shone through. It was an unforgettable spectacle for his friend Greg Hunt, who recalled, I remember the whole school stopped to watch him lifting the bar time after time to break record after record in high jump. At the age of 15, Greg showcased his talent on the football field, 
donning the role of center halfback for the Peninsula School's senior team. Later, he continued his football journey with Hawthorne's under-19s. Post-graduation, Greg embarked on a path leading to the Air Force, where he pursued a mechanical career, stationed successfully in Wagga, Sale, and Point Cook. However, Greg's ambitions extended beyond the realm of mechanics. He eventually ventured into entrepreneurship, establishing his own thriving wholesale nursery in Cranbourne. Specializing in cultivating trees and plants, he catered to the demands of local garden shops. Friends and acquaintances depicted Greg as a charismatic individual, known for his infectious smile, firm handshake, and zest for life. Notably, he possessed exceptional listening skills, offering solace and an ear to those in need. Despite his accomplishments, Greg never quite felt at home in Australia. He perceived himself as a misfit in a country that had seemingly outgrown his adventurous spirit and loud personality. Craving a place where people shared his larger-than-life qualities, Greg fixed his gaze upon Los Angeles, California, in the United States. His quest for self-discovery commenced as soon as he set foot on American soil, settling down and marrying an American woman. They had a son together, but almost as soon as the marriage started, it came to an end. After bouncing from job to job, Greg resolved that life held greater promises for him. Embarking on a journey of professional reinvention, Greg delved into the world of stock exchange trading before transitioning to the construction industry. He got his U.S. qualifications in plumbing, electrics, construction, and building codes. He worked on massive, multi-million dollar hotel and casino jobs as a project manager, an accredited building official, and an expert in municipal codes. Dan Servanak, a Los Angeles developer and business partner of Greg at a business called Fullscope, recalled, He knew his stuff. He took the bull by the horns. A very smart guy. A numbers man. After the collapse of the inflated U.S. economy, Greg decided to go out on his own and become a developer. It was 2009, and by this stage, he had settled down with a Brazilian woman named Katie Scartazzini, who he married. Disenchanted with constructing lavish playgrounds for the affluent, Greg yearned for a more purposeful endeavor that would positively impact the lives of those struggling to make ends meet. He began purchasing in urban areas throughout the United States, utilizing local labor to create affordable and desirable housing solutions for the community. Greg McNichol purchased in some of the worst foreclosure zones in St. Louis, Atlanta, and New York. His strategy was to seize these neglected buildings at their lowest prices, get rid of troublesome tenants, refurbish the structures, and then offer them as homes to local residents at an affordable price. Greg, far from being a slumlord driven by greed, pursued this endeavor with an altruistic spirit driven by the desire to rejuvenate what already existed. In 2010, Greg's journey led him to Detroit, a city that had been plagued by foreclosure, crime, and drugs. 
He immediately fell in love with Detroit and envisioned making it a better place. He had a deep compassion and wanted to improve the lives of those people in the urban landscape. He decided to purchase some dilapidated buildings and breathe new life into them. In February 2011, Greg acquired a 10-unit apartment complex situated at 4110 Beneteau, nestled on Detroit's east side. The unassuming block of apartments suffered from severe decay, was infested with rats, and was situated in an area marred by drugs and gangs. However, amidst the challenges, there existed resilient homeowners striving to navigate their circumstances with dignity. Leveraging Detroit's post-foreclosure crisis, Greg acquired the apartment complex for a mere $30,000. It soon became his pride and joy. Although in disrepair, Greg embarked on extensive renovations, striving to create a pleasant living situation for his tenants. His wife, Katie, recalled, Greg believed in the American dream. He believed in Detroit. He wanted to invest in Detroit and was really happy with what he'd done with this building so far. Greg stood out in the almost totally African-American neighborhood, but he was warmly welcomed by the tenants. One tenant, Florida Benton, said he had a genuine interest in enriching himself in their culture and listening to their tales of struggle. Florida recalled how Greg frequently joined her and her friends in their apartment, where he was introduced to mustard and turnip greens, candied yams, and Jiffy brand cornbread. She fondly recalled, I enjoyed cooking for him and teaching him about the culture. As a man of considerable wealth and privilege, Greg encountered a profoundly transformative experience alongside his new tenants. While fulfilling his role as a landlord, the residents of the apartment complex regarded him as so much more. Greg's dedication to building genuine connections motivated him to go above and beyond, ensuring he knew his tenants personally and assisted them in any way he could. When Clarice Adams, a tenant, mentioned her lack of a refrigerator, Greg took it upon himself to provide her with one. He addressed neglected issues like faulty locks, he replaced leaky toilets, and even crafted cabinets with his own hands. Florida recalled of Greg, He was doing a great job. He wanted this to be a family building where people could just come and live. You don't have a lot, but you could have some decent housing. In an effort to make the apartment complex more affordable, Greg went so far as to reduce the monthly rent from $500 to $250 for tenants who remained in their units during renovations. Throughout the process, Greg resided in the most dilapidated apartment within the complex while Katie held down the fort in California. He had a vision of converting a piece of run-down land outside the complex into a picnic area, somewhere that families and tenants alike could chill and spend time together. There was a tree at this spot, and after a hard day's work, Greg could often be spotted here, sipping a beer and chatting with the locals. With his cowboy boots and Australian accent, the locals had come up with a nickname for Greg, Crocodile Hunter. He knew it was in good spirits and always played up to the Australian connection. 
part of Greg McNichol's plan to improve the area and the lives of his tenants was to bring in older tenants and family-friendly tenants. He wanted to bring some seniority and stability to the apartment complex. This meant getting rid of some tenants that he'd inherited. There was one family in particular that was proving to be difficult for Greg. 20-year-old Ayana Young lived in one of the apartments, and complaints had been lodged about loud music, frequent visitors, and unauthorized occupants living in the unit. Greg and Ayana had also clashed over poor upkeep and damage to the property. Things came to a head when Ayana stopped paying her rent and was two months behind, leaving Greg out of pocket. Attempting to reach a resolution, Greg served Ayana with an eviction notice, but she chose to ignore it. He had the legal option of dumping her belongings out into the street, but that wasn't in Greg's nature. One afternoon in April 2011, Greg's property manager, Karen Rucker, received a phone call from Ayana's 62-year-old father, Freddie Young. Karen recalled that he told her he didn't want anybody disrespecting his daughter. However, if anyone had been the victim of disrespect, it was Greg himself. Ayana had exploited his kindness, refusing to vacate the premises, pay rent, or exhibit a more civil demeanor. Sunday, May 8, 2011, brought the first day of pleasant spring weather, with temperatures reaching a balmy 18 degrees. Greg worked on a ground-floor apartment, engaging in tasks like wall replacements, painting, sanding, toilet removal, and kitchen countertop renovation. He had organized a barbecue for tenants later that afternoon and generously provided them with funds to purchase food for everyone. However, the atmosphere grew tense as Ayana's relatives began exhibiting disruptive behavior outside the apartment complex. Greg intervened and asked them to be civil around the families that had gathered for the barbecue, sparking an argument. Moments later, Ayana's 62-year-old father, Freddie Young, was called by his niece, Nicole, who explained to the others that he was coming to kill the dude. Despite Greg's efforts to defuse the situation, a speeding car approached the apartment complex and Ayana leapt out. She rushed towards Greg and slapped him in the face and shouted, I'm tired of you white people. Ayana repeatedly hurled insults at Greg and he asked her to leave the property. Ayana responded by poking him in the face, while another member of the group swung at him. Maintaining his composure, Greg refrained from responding to their provocations. However, Ayana's mother joined in, swiftly rallying the crowd against Greg. As the argument escalated, another tenant at the apartment complex called the police. Another tenant, Clarice Adams, was there with her children, watching the fiasco unfold. She recalled, I really thought they were going to fight him and jump him, and me and my family weren't going to let that happen. As the argument heated up, a man arrived in a black Chevy Avalanche. A middle-aged black man with a goatee climbed out of the vehicle. It was Ayana's father, Freddie Young. When he exited his car, he was holding a silver 357 Magnum revolver. He shouted at Greg to watch his mouth, to which Greg replied he wanted Ayana and the rest of them out of the apartment. Young then lifted the gun up, pointed it at Greg, and fired a single shot at a distance of about two to three meters. 
As Greg fell to his knees, Young climbed back into his Chevy, followed by Ayana and the rest of the group who had been arguing with Greg. Then they sped off away from the scene, just as Greg fell onto his back on the sidewalk with blood saturating his jeans. Clarice and the other tenants ran to Greg's side, and he grabbed his cell phone from his pocket and called 911. At the start of the call, Greg was alert as he said, I've been shot through a vein in my leg. The operator asked Greg who shot him, and he responded, One of my tenants' father. While on the phone, Clarice crouched beside Greg and put pressure on the wound. She recalled, He was screaming and hollering. He was trying to call a name out. It had to be his wife. Know what I'm saying? Because if there's one thing we knew, he loved his wife. The tenants pleaded with Greg to hold on, but his breath was getting fainter and fainter. He was still on the phone to 911, but by this stage, his third speech had turned to silence. Florida held Greg's hand and assured him, You're going to be okay. Hold still. You're going to be okay. Other tenants ran into their apartments to bring out bandages and towels, but the blood flowed so heavily that their first aid attempts did very little to stem the flow. Within minutes, the ambulance arrived on the scene. They carefully loaded Greg onto a stretcher and took off speeding with sirens blazing. Tragically, Greg succumbed to his injuries before they reached the hospital. The single shot had severed a major artery in Greg's groin, and he bled to death. At the time, Katie had been in Brazil visiting family. She had tried to reach Greg on the phone, but after calls went unanswered, she called Clarice. She had the daunting task of informing her that her husband was dead. The news of Greg McNichol's murder stunned the residents at the apartment complex. They had just lost somebody that they had all come to love as a friend, somebody who wanted nothing more than to improve their lives. Clarice commented, It's an embarrassment. This man came here to do these deals, make things better for us living-wise. His heart was in it. He didn't go to a five-star hotel. He stayed here with us. The tenants also feared that with Greg gone, his wife Katie may come and sell the building. Katie was quick to respond to their fears and stressed that she had no plans of selling the apartment complex. She stated, I'm not going to sell this building. I'm going to keep his dream alive. I'm going to keep his place and finish the work he started. Katie also said that the violent nature of Greg's death hadn't changed her opinion of the city. She commented, he thought this was a good city, and he said there are some parts, but also a lot of good parts. It's true. There are a lot of nice people here. Flinders MP Greg Hunt, who was a high school friend of Greg, also vowed to see the renovations completed. He promised to lobby Detroit Mayor Dave Bing, telling The Age, the legacy we want to create is to make sure his vision of turning a rundown slum into a model community is completed. The tenants at the apartment complex believed that the city owed it to Greg to realize his vision. Florida commented, We have a lot of negative going on, but a lot of positive too. There are people like Greg taking a chance on Detroit who are not going to get stopped. This time next year, this property will be thriving the way he knew it would. 
his life won't be in vain. The family now had the arduous task of arranging for Greg's body to be returned to Australia so that he could be buried on the Mornington Peninsula. Greg's sister, Karen McNichol, shared her grief with the Herald Sun. She solemnly stated, It's not just losing him, it's the circumstances we lost him in. On May 13th, Freddie Young was arrested while working his shift at the U.S. Postal Mail Center, where he had worked for 13 years. Young was brought to the police station to be interrogated by Sergeant William Hart. He did not deny that he had shot Greg, although he claimed it was an accident. Young said he had driven to the apartment complex to give his niece, Nicole, some money. Upon arriving, however, he explained that he observed his daughter, Ayana, in an altercation with Greg. He recalled, She took a swing at him and either grazed him or missed him. Young said that he got out of his car but hadn't realized he had a pistol in his hand. He claimed that Greg was holding a beer can and lunged at him, and somehow the gun went off. According to Young, when he saw Greg fall to the ground with blood seeping through his jeans, he panicked and drove home. He said to Sergeant Hart, I met my wife at the door. I told her, I think I may have shot someone. Young maintained that it wasn't until two or three days later when he saw a report about the shooting on the news that he realized Greg had been shot. The following day, Young appeared in court, where he was charged with the first-degree murder of Greg. Following the brief court hearing, Wayne County Prosecutor Kim Worthy commented, By all accounts, he was a landlord hoping to have a positive impact in the community. This is extremely discouraging, and I sincerely hope that this does not have a chilling effect for others who want to do business in the city of Detroit. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. The arrest of Freddie Young sent shockwaves through the city of Detroit. His name was a familiar one in local newspapers. In February, Young was part of the famed P1 Gold Lottery Club, a tight-knit group comprising postal service workers and retirees. Their perseverance paid off when they struck gold, winning a staggering $46.5 million Mega Millions jackpot after participating diligently for over a decade. At a grand ceremony, the club representatives chose the cash option, resulting in a considerable split of $29 million before taxes. However, federal and state taxes took their toll, 
leaving Young and the other winners with a still impressive sum of around $1.8 million in cash. Other tenants were surprised to hear that Ayana's father was Young, a multimillionaire. Florida stated, My question is, if Young had that type of money, what was his daughter still doing here? Why would you leave them here to live in this? If you come over here and take a life, you could have just as easily worked to rebuild a life. She said to the Detroit News, if she could say something to Young, it would be, I pray for you and your family, but I'm so angry at you. He was trying to help the city of Detroit. He felt he could make a real investment in Detroit. Despite his wealth, Young himself continued to reside in a dilapidated part of Detroit, specifically a shabby home on Traverse Street, not far from the crime scene. This ramshackle residence, valued at a mere $15,000, bore a stern warning on its door, keeping people away except for the mailman. The surroundings were equally disheartening, with overgrown lots and decaying vacant structures dotting the landscape. He also remained working at the Priority Mail Processing Center in Romulus. However, Young had flashed the cash in other ways, purchasing new vehicles. In March, he purchased a 2011 Chevrolet Corvette and a 2011 Chevrolet Avalanche. At the time, the cheapest Corvette started at $49,000, and they could run well into the $70,000 range. Detectives were just as stunned by Young's actions as the rest of the community. Young had just come into a tremendous amount of money and could have easily transformed his life as well as the lives of the rest of his family. He could have paid Ayana's rent for the rest of her life instead of seeing her face eviction. Instead, he chose to take his anger out on a man who was simply trying to do his job. Lieutenant Dwayne Blackman commented, It didn't make any sense. Young didn't have a criminal record, but according to family members, he had a violent temper. Greg McNichol's body was embalmed in Detroit and then flown back to Melbourne on May 18th. The following day, his funeral was held at the Mornington Cemetery. The gray skies matched the somber mood of the mourners as they chatted amongst themselves. During the funeral, Greg's friend, Scott Webster, delivered a eulogy. He shared that Greg planned to use the properties he was renovating to get income from the rent and then return to the peninsula to settle with his wife at Red Hill. Greg and Katie had recently been talking about starting a family, and he wanted to raise his children near where he was raised. To friends, they took this as Greg finally being content in his life, something he had been searching for for decades. In a cruel twist of fate, that was taken from him, and taken away from Katie. Just days after the funeral, Young was bound over by 36th District Judge Patricia Jefferson on charges of first-degree murder and use of a firearm in the commission of a felony. The following month, Judge Linda Parker scheduled the murder trial for January 2012. It was an unusually long time between the arrest and the trial, because she expected a lengthy argument over technicalities in the case. She stated, Due to the seriousness of the charges, the court will allow an extended calendar. As the prosecution and defense were preparing for trial, Katie filed a lawsuit against Freddie Young for the wrongful death of Greg. 
Lawyer David Christensen said, The evidence suggests he killed a man for a small amount of rent. If you've got more than a million bucks, why not throw $500 at rent? Christensen was also seeking a court order to stop Young from spending or dispersing any more of his share from the lottery win. He explained that he requested an emergency hearing as soon as possible to freeze whatever accounts Young may have. They feared that Young was going to try and squander whatever money he had left so that if he were determined to be financially responsible for Greg's death, then he would have no money to pay Katie. Young had hired some of Detroit's best-known defense lawyers to defend him, including Jeffrey Edison, Larry Polk, and Cornelius and Byron Pitts. Christensen touched on this, stating, We have noticed the size of his legal defense team and are worried the assets will be lost if we don't ask the court to maintain the status quo. We would have much rather Mr. Young used his lottery winnings to enjoy the rest of his life instead of compensating Mr. McNichol's family. The lawsuit claimed the minimum amount of damages required under state law in excess of $25,000. The actual damages, if any, would be set by a jury at the conclusion of the upcoming murder trial. After the lawsuit was filed, Circuit Court Judge Brian Sullivan issued a temporary restraining order which prevented Young from transferring, dissipating, or otherwise squandering his current assets. On June 24th, Freddie Young asked to be released on bond awaiting his trial. During a bond hearing, his defense attorney said he had a clean record and suggested he may have been acting in self-defense. Defense attorney Jeffrey Edison argued, It was our position that manslaughter was the appropriate charge when you consider the passion and emotions of the situation. Defense attorney Byron Pitts then went a step further. He suggested that Young was acting in self-defense and claimed that Greg had approached his client aggressively when Young stepped from his vehicle armed with a gun he was permitted to carry. He suggested that Greg was holding a weapon, which was simply a beer bottle or beer can, and said that Young fired a shot that wasn't directed at his head or chest. A prosecutor warned Circuit Court Judge Linda Parker that when Young was arrested, he had $600,000 in his glove box. The $600,000 had been converted into cashier's checks in Young's wife's name. The judge ultimately denied the request for bond due to the fact that she believed Young would be a flight risk. As the trial was approaching, back at the apartment complex in Detroit, Greg's vision was living on. Volunteers frequently mowed the lawns, while a shiny cross made of flattened Australian beer cans was affixed to Greg's favorite tree. Katie moved from California to southeast Michigan, where she managed the rental properties that Greg had amassed. The renovations were still going ahead at the Beneteau apartment complex. She poignantly commented, Greg's goal was to make them as though he was going to live in them. We never had children, so these properties are like our children to me. At first, Katie struggled to return to the scene where Greg had lost his life, but months on, she was there almost every single day, turning Greg's dream into a reality. She said that now, she didn't see the apartment complex as the place Greg lost his life, but instead, saw it as his dream. She lamented the fact that news stories had popped up aimed at real estate entrepreneurs that used Greg's murder as a reason to avoid investment in Detroit. She stated, 
We closed on the building. We were watching the Super Bowl six days later when we saw Eminem's commercial for Chrysler, the one about the tough spirit of the city. We got goosebumps. Greg was excited. He said, baby, we are there. He would have volunteered to be a part of that ad campaign as Greg believed in Detroit. On January 12, 2012, the jury had been selected and the murder trial was ready to commence. The public gallery was filled with Greg McNichol's loved ones, including his former tenants from Detroit. During opening statements, prosecutor Steve Kaplan argued that Freddie Young was irate over Greg's attempts to evict his daughter. He said, Young wasn't happy with the way his daughter was being treated, and he reacted by shooting and killing Greg. He stated, It's a simple case. We know who did it, Freddie Young. It is not a whodunit case. The defense, on the other hand, suggested that Young had acted in self-defense. Defense attorney Larry Polk described Young as a hard-working man who was licensed to carry a concealed pistol. He stated, It's not just a simple case. Witnesses will not provide truthful evidence of what happened on that day. Among the first witnesses to testify was Katie, and she described to the court how pleased Greg was with the purchase of the Detroit apartment complex. She detailed how Ayanna Young was causing domestic issues for Greg, was behind in her rent, and had ignored a 30-day eviction notice. Karen James, the property manager, detailed to the court how Young had called her up in the weeks before the shooting and told her he did not want his daughter disrespected. Testimony then turned to the day of the shooting, and tenant Thomas Benton testified, Greg kept politely asking her to leave his property. Under cross-examination, Thomas conceded that during the altercation, after Ayana slapped him in the face, he became agitated and was kind of disrespectful to Ayana. He said that a short time later, Young drove up, got out of the car, and shot Greg. Other tenants testified, and they all described Young coming out of his vehicle and shooting Greg. The haunting 911 call that Greg had made after he was shot was played aloud for the jury. At the start of the 72nd phone call, Greg was alert, before his voice became groggy. By the end of the call, Greg had lost consciousness. The jury also saw the videotaped interrogation of Young in which he claimed that the gun discharged accidentally. On the fourth day of the trial, there was an unexpected twist when Judge Linda Parker declared a mistrial. The mistrial had come after a witness who was being questioned by Prosecutor Stephen Kaplan answered a question in a way that Young's defense team argued was prejudicial. She was asked, who was Nicole? And she replied that she was the person who called the man who shot Greg. Since this answer was similar to proffered testimony, it was ruled inadmissible and a mistrial was ordered. The prosecution disagreed with the mistrial, with a spokeswoman stating, The judge acknowledged that the prosecutor did nothing improper. In fact, we believe that such an extreme remedy was not required. Greg's family were upset about the decision, with Katie commenting, I believe everything happens for a reason, and in the end, all I want is justice served. A new trial date was scheduled for the spring of that year, with a brand new jury. There was some speculation that Young may change his plea as part of a plea agreement, but his defense team refuted this. 
They said that Young had expressed no interest in pleading guilty to a lesser charge to avoid a trial. Defense attorney Edison stated, Mr. Young has always maintained he is not guilty of the charge. He has not changed his position and is looking forward to clearing his name through a trial. However, in April, the trial was postponed until the beginning of July that year. The jury once more heard the 911 call that Greg had made preceding his death. The same people that had testified before testified again, and photographs of the murder weapon and money were presented. The mother of the previous witness who had testified about the phone call was called to the witness stand. While on cross-examination, the trial court sought clarification from the witness regarding whether a particular individual the witness was describing was the same woman that the witness had described at a different time. In response to the question, the witness told the judge that she was a different person. As it was the person who called everybody, I guess, to come, the court then cut her off saying, nope, okay, thank you. During a break in testimony, Young requested another mistrial and argued that the witness had blurted out once again what this court has ruled was impermissible. She tried to testify that she was the one who called people over. That's what that witness said, and again, it seems to go against this court's ruling as it relates to this kind of hearsay information about somebody allegedly calling over defendant to shoot this individual. The request for the mistrial was denied, and before the trial came to an end, Young sought a motion for a directed verdict of acquittal. The motion was denied, and the jury were sent away to deliberate. After deliberating for just 30 minutes, they returned with a verdict. They found Freddie Young guilty of the second-degree murder of Greg McNichol. After the verdict, Katie said she hoped Young would have been convicted of first-degree murder, but added that she was glad we got at least some justice for Greg. She also praised Sergeant Hart and Prosecutor Kaplan, who faced a legal team made up of some of Detroit's most esteemed defense attorneys. The sentencing phase of the trial followed on August 3rd. Katie delivered an impactful victim impact statement directed at Freddie Young. She stared him down as she said, Mr. Young, I've watched you throughout the trial, sitting there as if you were the victim and Greg was the perpetrator. Today is the day for a reality check. I have no reason to celebrate the fact that you are going to jail because this is not going to bring my precious love back home. But I'm relieved you are going to jail. Judge Linda Parker then sentenced Freddie Young to a maximum sentence of 35 years in prison. Young's defense team announced they would be appealing the sentence and said the jury should have considered manslaughter. That appeal was launched in 2014, and Young argued that double jeopardy barred a retrial. He also argued that the trial court abused its discretion by allowing photographs of guns, money, and money orders that were seized from his home and car. Thirdly, he argued that the trial court abused its discretion and erred when it denied his request for a mistrial in the second trial. Finally, he argued that the trial court erred when it permitted the jury to consider first-degree murder, claiming there wasn't enough evidence to permit the jury to find premeditation and deliberation beyond a reasonable doubt. The appeal was denied. Ultimately, the lawsuit filed against Young by Katie would result in a $4.75 million judgment against him. The following year, the apartment complex in Beneteau was destroyed by a fire. 
displacing the nine families that called it home. Firefighters battled the blaze for hours before deciding to let the fire burn itself out. What was once Greg McNichols' hopes and dreams for a better future now stands as an empty lot. This episode was researched and written by Emily G. Thompson, editing and scoring by Corey Hiltman, script editing, additional writing, and production direction by Rosanna and Benjamin Fitton. For more on our series and notes on this episode, please visit theywalkamonguspodcast.com. And for more on the Law & Crime Podcast Network, please visit lawandcrime.com podcasts. This has been They Walk Among America. Thank you for listening, and please be safe. It's the Kia Summer Sticker Sales Event, so give your friends something to look at. Like a B&B with an ocean view, an endless field of wildflowers, or a sunset that needs no filter. Make this a summer to share and save with a capable Kia SUV or powerful sedan. See your local Kia dealer or visit Kia.com to learn more. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-334-KIA for details. Always drive safely. Sale applies to purchase of specially tagged 2024 vehicles only. Quantities are limited. Must take delivery by 7824.